Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Good to see some of you who are coming back in. Maybe you got your vaccinations and things like that, and you're joining with us. Uh, faces we haven't seen in a while, and so we're thankful uh, that the church is able to gather more frequently and more comfortably. Uh, God's been good to us, and uh, we're thankful uh, to be together this morning as the church, as Jerry has said. Uh, if you have your outline, it'll be helpful for you to take that um, as we go along together. Thinking this morning, by way of introduction, about where we've been in the Gospel of Mark. If you are joining with us, we've been studying Mark's Gospel. We've been in chapter 4. We're going to conclude that chapter together this morning. But this morning, thinking about our outline, we want to talk a little bit about the Kingdom of God program and specifically its relationship to the parables. Uh, We saw last week that Mark uh, conveys to us that Jesus, at a certain point in his ministry, begins altering what he's doing a little bit. Up to this point, he's been proclaiming the kingdom of God openly, uh, really throughout the first part of his ministry, but a transition occurs after the religious leaders accuse him of satanic activity. Remember, they specifically relate the power of the miracles that he's doing and casting out demons to the work of Satan. And it's at this point in the synoptics that you begin to see Jesus teaching primarily in parables concerning the kingdom of God. Now, he's used parables before at this point, but more as illustrations. Now, the focus of his teaching is going to be in these parables regarding the kingdom. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we spoke a little bit about this last week and some more sort of at the beginning of this series. The Old Testament was expecting Messiah to come and immediately set up his kingdom defeat the Gentile powers, restore the Davidic kingdom, restore Israel, uh, bring back, reunify Israel in a sense, the northern and southern kingdoms, and then establish Israel as the lead nation on the earth and rule and reign in power. That's really what the Old Testament expectation is if you track through the prophets. What we see, though, is when Jesus comes, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is what they would have all been thinking. It clearly is what they are thinking. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, Thy Kingdom Come, he's helpful, though, in speaking about this transition that happens in Jesus' ministry. He says this, Following the rejection of Christ's offer of himself as Messiah, he revealed a new form in which the theocratic kingdom of God would be administered in the age falling between Israel's rejection of Christ as Messiah, the Son of God, and the nation's future acceptance of him as Messiah at the second advent. Christ revealed essential features of the new form of the kingdom in the parables in which he taught. Now, let me just show you a couple of illustrations here. The first of which comes from this book by Pentecost, which is called Thy Kingdom Come. It's a, fast, it's a really, really good book on this topic, very focused on sort of a big picture overview of the idea of the kingdom of God in Scripture. Let me just shame you a little bit. Um, I met with Mary Beard, who's in her 90s this week. Uh, I went and hung out with her a little bit this week, and she was like, now baby, I read that book that you said we should read, and she took it and showed me all the things that she had underlined in reading this. And I said, Miss Mary, I just pray that when I am your age, should the Lord give me that many years, that I am still so interested in studying God's word and understanding it more. So she had read this one, and I don't know if you remember, I also suggested Michael Vlack's Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God that's called Thy Kingdom Come. It's like this big. She had started that one. She was working her way through that one. So be a reader, 
be someone who presses into things. You don't have to read every book I suggest, but the Lord gave me Miss Mary Beard so that she's the one buying all the books that I suggest. So let me just, again, recommend this book. This diagram comes from the back of this book, and what it does is what he's interested in doing is talking about how the overall eternal kingdom of God that's spoken of from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22, what is the relationship of that eternal kingdom of God to what we see on the earth and how that plays out across the various ages or dispensations? But also then, how is it manifest then in the world? And so he's laying this out, and that whole book kind of tracks through thinking about this. What we have, what Jesus does when he shows up and begins proclaiming the kingdom of God, it is that promised messianic kingdom, which is pictured in the Old Testament and which will be fulfilled very literally, we believe, in the millennium. What we see, though, is that there's a transition, but he continues to speak about the kingdom of God, but he speaks about it a mystery form of this kingdom. Now, within our own tradition, within the dispensational theological tradition, there's been a couple of ways to understand these parables and the way he speaks. Whoops, sorry, let me go back. Oh, Kevin, you didn't get my new PowerPoint. Sorry, okay, so I'm missing an illustration. Let me get back to this. All right, so in these discussions of the parables, what you see is there's a reference. There continues to be reference to the kingdom of God, but he speaks of it in a way that doesn't seem to fit with what the Old Testament expected. And so what some people have referred to is this is the mystery form of the kingdom, in that the eternal kingdom of God has a manifestation in this age between when Jesus is proclaiming and then ultimately when it's fulfilled in the millennium. And so this inter intermittent period that was unforeseen in the Old Testament, again, uh, theologians will refer to this as the mystery form of the kingdom. It's referring to how is this theocratic kingdom of God, his eternal rule, going to be manifested on the earth during this age. That's the shift that occurs when he begins speaking in these parables. And you'll see this as we begin working our way through in these parables. He's going to talk about the kingdom of God in a way that would not have been congruent with what the Old Testament expected. And what he's doing is he's teaching his disciples about what it's going to be like in the time period that's coming. Now at this point, they're not expecting his death, burial, and resurrection, although he's going to begin teaching clearly about that, but they're not going to be willing to receive that. It, it doesn't seem to fit with what their expectations are. And so he's going to begin teaching on these things. He's going to give them insight, and they're going to have a degree of understanding that's going to separate them or differentiate them from the others who hear, and yet what we're going to see this morning is even his own disciples are not going to fully get this. In your outline, there are three things about this period of time, okay? First, there is going to be a period of time that's going to intervene before the Davidic kingdom would be literally established on earth. These are adapted from William McDonald's Believer's Bible Commentary. He's got a good little section on this in Mark's Gospel. Also this, during this interim or this period, this is go it's going to exist in spiritual form. All who acknowledge Christ as king would be, in a sense, in the kingdom, even though the king himself is absent. And then during this time period, this is what we saw last week, this is actually what's pictured in the parable of the sower. During this time period, the word of God would be sown during this interim period with varying degrees of success. Some will actually be converted, but others will only appear to believe. 
all professing Christians would be in the kingdom in its sort of outward form. There's going to be a very visible outward form. Um, Historically, uh, certain theologians have referred to this as Christendom. You look out and you see sort of the impact of Christianity. You see churches in the world. And yet that itself, that outward manifestation, is not the true universal church. It's the outward form of it. So you look at that and you see Christendom, you see the impact of Christianity and culture and things like that, and yet not everyone associated with Christendom is actually a true believer. The true church exists within that. And so that what you're going to see then is that all professing Christians are going to be a part of that kingdom in its outward form, but again, only those of genuine faith would enter the kingdom in its inner reality. So in this sense, Believers can rightly be understood as citizens of the kingdom because of their relationship to the king and the fact that they're going to reign with him when he establishes it in its fullness upon his return. What we're going to see then as we look at Jesus' teachings in these parables that continue to concern the kingdom, we must be discerning in what he's talking about. Because he's actually going to teach as well about the future coming millennial kingdom at times. So we have to be careful, and you'll see this as we go through and examine his teachings more and more throughout this study. Here's the thing, though. As we're looking at Mark's gospel and we're thinking about theology and we're thinking about the unfolding of God's plans and purposes, what we don't want to do is miss the forest for the trees. We don't want to miss what Mark's goal is for us in studying this gospel. What Mark is doing is he's teaching us, he's showing us about those who were insiders. Remember we've used that imagery of inside and outside. Mark likes that imagery. What Mark is trying to do is he's trying to show us what it means to be one of those who, is, who are with Jesus, that the believers, his followers, are with him while the unbelievers are outside. And what Mark wants is he wants all of us who read his gospel to do so in faith, believing who Jesus is, believing what Jesus teaches, trusting that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. So this morning, as we're looking at these things, we're going to see in these parables, we're also going to see something, uh, an incident that shows us who Jesus is. He's going to be teaching about the kingdom, but then we're going to get this incident that shows us something about who he truly is. And so our overall key point this morning is this. Jesus' teachings concerning the kingdom of God were, like his true identity, veiled to those who did not believe in him, yet further revealed to those who, who had faith in him. As readers of Mark's gospel, see, we know Jesus' true identity because he's, Mark has given it to us on the front end. But those who encountered Jesus, even his closest followers, they're still going to be struggling to make sense of all this. You're going to see this this morning. It's amazing. They're struggling to make sense of it. So what we want to do is we want to see the connection this morning between the veiled nature of his identity and the veiled nature of his teaching concerning the kingdom His teaching concerning the kingdom, it's going to be revealed progressively through his explanations of the parables, but his identity is going to be revealed through the various miraculous works that he does. So we're going to see this connection this morning. Before we read God's word together, let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we recognize you this morning as you are God Almighty, the one whom the angels proclaim as holy, holy, holy. You are completely other than we are as our creator, Lord. We are your creatures. All to you. We give you thanks this morning that you have brought us together. We who in and of ourselves are not holy. Father, we thank you that though in Christ, in our position, you have declared us to be holy. 
You have made full atonement for our sins, Lord. And more than that, you have freely gifted to us the righteousness of your Son. And we give you thanks this morning then that we can stand in your presence and sing, that we can offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices and that this is acceptable to you because your Son is acceptable to you. We give you thanks then that we can now look to your word. Lord, we confess to you, Lord, that we have come here this morning with many things in our minds and hearts. Many things distracting us from what you would teach us, Lord. Many things distracting us from who you truly are. Teach us this morning, Lord, as we are with you. Show us this morning, remind us this morning who the Lord Jesus is, that we may have comfort in him, that we may trust in him, that we may rely upon him. Lord, I give you thanks this morning for your church, the gathered assembly of your people that you have called out from the world. Here is your church this morning, Lord. We present ourselves before you. Teach us now by the power of your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take this morning uh, and be looking in sort of two sections. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 41. And we're going to take it in two sections. The first section is going to be focused on parables, verses 21 through 33. And so if you look there in your outline, we'll work our way through there. So let me read this section of Scripture, verses 29, 21 excuse me, through 43, and then we'll work through that content. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? Or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle. He puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. All right, let's consider these parables. They fall into two sections. The first are what we would say parables of sense. They're dealing with um, the senses, specifically this, your bullet point there. They use imagery, Jesus used imagery of seeing and hearing to express in parable form what he had disclosed to those closest to him. These images, they really relate to sort of what he's already said generally about parables. That the parables are going to function on two levels. They're going to give greater understanding to those who have faith, and they're going to limit understanding of those who do not believe. So in the first one there that we see, we have the image of a lamp. Again, Jesus is very good at using familiar imagery. Here's a, a, a lamp from the first century. Very simple, filled with oil, a wick in the front. 
This is what they would have used within homes. This is what they would have used to go about maybe around their property or maybe even uh, in small areas. Uh, you wouldn't have necessarily been out, you know, in the, in the desert with a lamp like this. You might have gone with something a little bit more robust. But this was a very personal use type lamp that you would have seen at this time. And so you, you see the imagery that he calls to mind. It's something that would have been familiar to them. And he makes the simple point. He's like, look, you don't bring in a lamp in order to put it under a bed or a stand. Now, a lamp can be veiled for a period of time. That can certainly be something that you do. Maybe you want to limit the amount of light that's given out, or maybe for a second or a period of time, you really do want to hide it for some particular reason. But his, his point in using that imagery is that that's not the point or goal of a lamp. What is the point or goal of a lamp? It's to give sight. It's to give light so that one can see. And so he calls to mind this imagery, and Jesus likes this imagery. In some of the other Gospels, in Matthew and in John, he uses it in different ways. Okay, he uses lamp imagery. This is not the only time he uses it. Here, what he's doing, though, with this small parable, is he's doing it to show that although his teaching is veiled for a time, the ultimate goal is that it would be made known. Just in the same way that you could veil a lamp for a period of time, that's not the ultimate goal of the lamp. His teaching is going to be hidden for a time from certain people. They're not going to understand it. But ultimately, though, it is going to be disclosed. It's going to be made manifest or made known. So that's the imagery of sight that he uses. Then he speaks about what is heard in verses 24 and 25. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. His focus then, now, in light of talking about what will be made known and seen, he uses sight imagery, now he speaks about hearing. The imagery, again, is it's the amount of something that's given. Okay? He's saying what you've heard, it's like an amount that's given. And then the issue is what one does with it. All these people have been around him. You've got lots of people hearing these parables. But as we saw with the parable of the sower, it's his followers, the true ones who believe, who come aside to him, who are with him, who then ask him about them, and they get, he gives them more insight. And yet, the parables themselves, they have discernible meaning. The imagery is to point them to things. Those, remember last week, we, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what we see here is this parable of the measure, it conveys that those who hear the truth, they are responsible for how they receive the truth and how they respond to it. And in light of that then, further blessing or further judgment are going to follow based on the response. This flows very naturally even out of the imagery of the parable of the sower. This really, it illustrates Jesus' whole point with what he's done with the parable of the sower. That's kind of what Mark is doing in compiling these parables together this way. Those who are inside receive even more revelation. The parables are explained. Those who are on the outside, those who do not believe, they don't even understand what they've heard. It doesn't even make any sense to them. So maybe the imagery itself is lost. That's kind of what Jesus is conveying here. So you get these imagery, these uh, parables associated with sense. Then we get these two seed parables, okay? Parables that are associated with seed. Jesus sort of returns to his agricultural metaphor that we saw last week. The first seed parable, it's a parable about the growth of seed after it had been scattered. So Jesus returns again to the image of scattering seed. 
And yet, instead of focusing on the soil, like he did with the parable of the sower, he focuses now on the growth. What happens to the seed that actually produces the good seed, in a sense? What happens with it? So he tells about a man who goes to sow. He throws the seed out. He recognizes, though, that he's not the one who makes it grow. And he doesn't even, in one sense, understand how it grows. Now, I know you were all in second grade, and your teacher talked to you about how the seeds replicate and all those things, and so now we're good moderns, and we know how seeds grow. Okay, explain to me, like, cellular division and mitosis and all of those other words that you learned in ninth grade biology. Maybe some of you who are doctors or nurses can press a little further into that. I mean, you could give me a biology textbook. I did, my lowest grade in college. I did okay in college, but I ended up in the pre-med biology class because I was a soccer player and had to beg for a C. Like, please, please, please don't give me a D in this class. And he took pity upon me because he realized it was a scheduling error. I'm not a science person, but here's the thing. We live in a modern world where because there's some explanations of how something happens, we miss the amazing nature of what actually happens. The whole point of this parable is that the one goes out and scatters the seed, and the growth comes, and that is an amazing thing. The point here, then, in light of the, what, what's going on, is that the seed, there's power within the seed itself. It's not the one who does the scattering here in this parable. Growth occurs. What we do see, though, is that there is the work of the scattering of the seed, and there's the work, ultimately, of the harvest, This parable, it concerns the new form of God's kingdom program that's going to be seen in the age, especially following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The word is going to be sown throughout the world, but its success is not going to depend ultimately on the one who sows, but instead upon the power of the word itself. Taking the imagery again from the parable of the sower, that the image is of the word being sown. So this is a lesson, really, for the disciples. It's on the front end a lesson for the disciples. Jesus is going to go. They don't understand this yet. But they're going to need this teaching to be reminded that it's not all on them to get the work done. Jesus, you're going to see this at the end of the gospel, again, in Matthew especially, where he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus recognizing that. And then in light of that, he sends his disciples. They go in his authority by the power of his word. What they should do, though, is they should have eyes to see the harvest. And a lot of this, it is somewhat eschatological. It's forward-looking. This imagery of a harvest, you do get an Old Testament connection in Joel, okay? In Joel 3.13, you get this image that, uh, look look at Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. This idea of a harvest, it is very eschatological and forward-looking. And so the recognition here is that the word is going to be spread throughout the world until the time for the harvest comes. And Jesus is going to use this imagery again. It's very end times focused on him coming back to judge and ultimately set up and establish his kingdom. So the disciples need to be aware and attuned to what God is doing and the way things are occurring, the way growth is happening. So you get the parable of the growing seed. Then he transitions and he gives another seed parable, probably one of the most familiar parables to you. If I say the word parable, the two that probably come to mind are the parable of the sower and the parable of the mustard seed. 
It's, it's one of the most common parables that comes to mind. So Jesus tells a parable about a mustard seed and the size of the tree into which it grew. Now, there's an image here that I've got for you. Any of you have mustard seed in the cabinet at the house that you do any, any cooking with? Okay, this is sort of a close-up image of a mustard seed. All right. Now, this was a proverbial saying in Israel at this time in the ancient Near East, and then specifically in rabbinic writings. They talked about the mustard seed. It was constantly used in rabbinic writings to emphasize something that's small. So Jesus speaks here, and he says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of the mustard, of mustard seed. It's this small, tiny, little seed. He's kind of like speaking in terms of some hyperbole. He says it's the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, yet when it's sown, it grows up to become larger than all the other garden plants. And this is really critical. A mustard plant is not a tree. We think of it like a tree, but it's really like an herb. Any of you have herb gardens? Maybe you've got some basil and some thyme and some oregano. I've planted an herb garden recently in our backyard. Those things grow, and I have like the Frankenstein's monster of rosemary. It's this kind of gnarled, scary rosemary-looking bush, but it's still this little bitty herb plant. When a mustard brush or bush is allowed to grow, it can become sort of tree-sized. It can grow. Now, this is an abnormally large one, but this conveys the point. It goes from this little bitty tiny seed to a very, very large shrub or brush, much bigger than any, anything else you would have in a garden. That's his entire point. It's this picture of something that starts small and ultimately grows. It's sort of the idea that the disparity between the size of the mustard seed and the tree that comes from it, it illustrates something about the kingdom of God in, in, the, uh, un, in this mystery age. Although the manifestation of this new, new form is going to have very humble beginnings, it's starting right here with this small number of people gathered around Jesus it's going ultimately to grow and spread throughout the world. In fact, the imagery he uses is the, it's so large that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. This is common Old Testament imagery. You see it from the book of Daniel. Oops, sorry. See it from the book of Daniel there. Uh, this is a, Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he sees. And the tree grew. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree, and it pictures sort of his kingdom in Babylon. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. Sort of classic imagery for a kingdom, okay, and, and its size and its scope and all of these things. His whole point here, though, again, is to show that although it has humble beginnings, the kingdom in the mystery age, it's going to grow, it's going to become large and be known in all the earth. If you combine all this together, you kind of ask, well, what is Jesus doing in all of these parables? He's saying that the mystery kingdom, it's going to go from small to great, but the true growth within it is going to come from the word producing fruit within you sort of pull all of this together. Again, it's this outer picture of Christendom with the true church within it. That God is ultimately giving true growth within. Here's the key point with, with this and thinking about the relationship to the disciples and what they're hearing and experiencing. Because of their faith in him, Jesus explained the parables to his followers, revealing truths to them concerning the kingdom of God program. 
That's what we need to keep in mind here in the big picture. Jesus, as he brings them in, he's explaining more about the kingdom that the others aren't getting. They're not getting necessarily what the images are referring to. And yet what we're going to see is that even his closest followers, they get some understanding, but they still don't really they still don't really understand in fullness. Although there is a definite distinction made between them and those who do not believe. Okay, so Mark then transitions in his narrative. He's got Jesus teaching these crowds. He's teaching in parables. Mark has distilled his teaching down into its most clear, simple form. And then we get this simple statement in verse 35. And let me just read, let me read the next section, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come. So you need to think of a day where Jesus has been teaching, 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 teaching. All day. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. The other boats were with them, were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's important that we keep in mind when this is happening. On the day, on that day when evening had come, he's been teaching all day. He's been teaching. Remember, uh, we spoke last week about how he actually has to get in a boat to keep the crowds from getting too close to him. So he's on this boat teaching. Now, did he probably take a lunch break? Maybe. We don't know for sure. But he's teaching these large crowds, and he's teaching them these things in parables. And it would have been fascinating to have heard the fullness of all of these things. But what we need to know is that Mark has conveyed to us the most essential elements of what Jesus taught. And he's wanting us to see and understand then what's happening as there's this transition to the Sea of Galilee. We have to make sense of that in light of what's gone before. And where this is going as well, Jesus is now, as we transition into chapter 5, there are going to be several miracles and miraculous things that Jesus does in and around the Sea of Galilee that begin actually on the sea here with this account. So it highlights that Jesus, they go over to the other side. He is the one who directs this. Let us go over to the other side. We'll speak about that a little bit more next week and talk about that geography. The point, though, is is that his followers go with him. And we need to remember, it's not just the 12. There are other followers. Okay, now the boat that they're in, we've got to get a feel for its size. Okay, now this sort of gives you a general idea. This is a reconstruction of sort of a first century Galilean fishing boat. It's possible that all the 12 are in the ship with him together. It's also possible that they're on multiple ships. Now, if you remember, he's got some fishermen with him who own ships. He's got Peter, James, John, Andrew. He's got fishermen with him. So access to boats is not going to be something that's difficult for him. 
Probably multiple boats would have been necessary for the 12, as well as the other followers that are with. So again, see that, that very clear picture, insiders and outsiders. The crowd, most of the crowd, outsiders. Jesus and the 12, they move away, and it says there are other ships that go with them. That's probably not you know, just the crowds getting in boats and following them. That's probably other boats with his followers. So again, mostly it's his followers who are with him as they go to the other side. Again, it says the other boat and other boats were with him. So this is the imagery again. You know, Mark wants us to see insiders here again, that they're being pulled, they're they're with him now. They've been with him hearing teaching. Now they're going to be with him and see things. That's really what you're going to, we're going to observe together this week and next week and, and the week after are several miraculous things that we're going to see, okay? Events or incidents that show his power. So you're going to get in this account this amazing picture of both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. Now, the Sea of Galilee is very interesting, and maybe if you've heard sermons taught on this or read books on this. It's a very interesting type of geography. It's sort of in a small valley. Uh, You have areas, uh, not mountainous, but hilly areas with valleys, and winds can whip up very quickly. Uh, The one time I went to Israel, I was on the Sea of Galilee. That's like what everybody does. I mean, there's an entire industry on taking people out on the Sea of Galilee. And when we started out, it was like clear and nice, and we got in the middle, and we were out there, and all of a sudden, it like clouded over, and the winds like started. And I was like, this is a little too, it's getting a little too weird for, a little too real for me here. Now, we weren't like capsizing or anything, but this little storm whipped up pretty quickly. Wind was blowing all of a sudden. It was kind of crazy how fast it happened. The Sea of Galilee is known for this. Those who live there and those who fish it are aware of the signs that lead up to it, and yet even still, almost everyone who fishes on the Sea of Galilee knows someone who was lost in one of these storms. And that would have certainly been the case, especially when they don't have Doppler radar and things like that. So these things would have happened, and the disciples would have understood this. And so the question becomes, did it just whip up really quickly and they didn't see it coming? Or did they see a storm brewing and think maybe we can get across? We don't really know the answer to that. But these are seasoned veterans of this sea. And yet here they are, and all of a sudden a storm comes quickly upon the sea. Now, this is not, a, this is not one of those exact replicas. This is actually a smaller boat, but it just sort of gives you an idea of what we're working with here. Okay? The boat that Jesus and the disciples would have been in would have been bigger than this, maybe about twice this size. But just so we've got a visual in mind, okay? Now we've got, again, experienced sailors are on this ship. And yet, as this storm whips up, you've got this response from the disciples and you've got this picture of Jesus here. Now usually in these places, in the stern of the ship, there was a place where you could lay down. If you were fishing on the sea, you might want to catch a nap. Jesus clearly is sleeping, and if you think about what he's been doing, that he's been teaching all day, there's an exhaustion to that. Now, maybe if you've never been a teacher or been involved much in teaching, you may wonder how, well, how tiring is that really? You're just talking or or whatever. There's a mental energy that's associated with teaching that really, really wears you out over time. Um, And so if he's teaching all day, if maybe they haven't had time for breaks and he doesn't have some Gatorades to go knock out in between teaching sessions, 
and he doesn't have coffee either. So he's not running on, he's running on the Holy Spirit and just whatever his humanity has there, okay? And so he's exhausted. He's so tired that a storm whips up on the sea, and he is still asleep. And it's not just that the boat is rocking and moving. It's that a real storm that is threatening the boat happens, okay? Now, in this account, one of the best ways, I think, to read this account is to look at the contrast. Look at the contrast. Okay, so let's just observe some of these contrasts. The first is there's a contrast between how Jesus and the disciples respond to the storm. Okay? First, what you see in them is that they are afraid. They are afraid. That's very, very clear from what they say. Okay? In contrast to them, he's calm, as pictured by the fact that he's asleep. They're frightened or they're afraid, he's calm, okay? Now, from a purely human perspective, the way that they're describing this is that the water is coming into the boat. I mean, that's what is interesting about how this language is used here. It's that the, you know, water is already filling. The boat is filling up with water. That's the imagery. So, from a purely human perspective, I mean, I get it, right? They're not supposed to be sitting there as calm as Hindu cows with serene looks on their faces, just waiting. I mean, this is a dangerous thing. And again, if this is a ship that has Peter, James, John, Andrew in there, these guys have been in storms before. So, if they're freaking out, it's because this is a serious situation. And yet, Jesus is asleep, okay? Now, let's just make some observations then. I think both of these things are very, very human, okay? Now, you may th- we may be thinking Jesus, you know, he's God's son, and so he's not worried, but I think it really is that he's purely physically exhausted. I mean, have you ever been so tired that you can sleep in almost any condition? I, I haven't gotten there too many times, but the first time we went to the country of Ukraine, um, we flew into this little town called Lviv, and then we had to drive to this place called Chernivtsi. This was in 2000. Misty was with me. She'll confirm this, okay? Um, she's over there, right there. Raise your hand, Misty, if you need to. So they picked us up, and first of all, I mean, you, we've done a transatlantic flight. We've been in Paris for a while. We've flown. I mean, and, and this is my first, like, big overseas experience, so my adrenaline's going crazy on the flights. I, I think I slept, like, two hours on the transatlantic flight. I was so excited to land in Paris. It was really cool. It was the airport where you 2 filmed the Beautiful Day video, and I was like, whoa, Bono was just here. Um, and so it was, it, was really, it was a really cool thing. So by the time we get picked up in Ukraine, it's like the afternoon. It's like, four, something like that, three or four, maybe later than that. And we have to drive to this town called Chernivtsi. Rabin was there too. He'll confirm this as well. And the ro- first of all, the roads in Ukraine at this point were not the best, to say the least, okay? I mean, like potholes. And our guy, we got picked up in this like white van that looked like something you would get kidnapped in Europe in. And, but our people, the, the Ukrainians that picked us up, they were awesome. But they put me and Rabin in the back and we're just driving, and I was so tired that I just leaned forward, and my head is just, and I mean, the thing's just bumping and bouncing the whole time. I, I slept. I slept during that. I don't know how I slept. It, the roads were crazy. We're swerving. You're driving through this little town, and all of a sudden, the guy slams on the brakes because a kid's walking across the street. It was nuts, but I slept because I was so tired. 
So when I see this and I think about what Jesus has been doing all day, from a purely his humanity, he could be so exhausted that he is asleep in the midst of a situation like this, in the midst of a storm that is this intense. What we see then, though, are their contrasts. It's the contrast here. Again, for, for these, these guys who are used to the sea, maybe they've lost friends in storms like this. So it's serious for them. So they're afraid he's calm. Then what you get this picture is that they speak to him, but he speaks to the storm. It's kind of another contrast that you see. They speak to him, he speaks to the storm. Now it's interesting. We don't know if they're, it doesn't seem like they're waking him up so that he can do something. Okay? When you look at the account, it doesn't seem like when he stills the storm, they're like, that's exactly what we were expecting. You don't get that here. It's interesting that it may have just been out of frustration with him. He's asleep in the midst. They feel like they're dying, and he's asleep. And so if you think about it, a huge part of their frustration is a frustration with Jesus' human limitations that he's so tired that he's actually still asleep in the midst of a storm. And so they go to him, and look at even the way that they speak to him. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's almost like he's got an indifference, or they, they feel like he's indifferent, or he has an inability to like enter into the gravity of the situation. And they're frustrated with him. And so that's their response to him. It's interesting that what you don't see in here is them praying. You don't see them praying. And I was thinking about this. If you think about another famous storm story in Scripture, it's Jonah. And all the pagans are praying. All the pagans are like calling out to their gods. Even the pagans in the midst of the storm are praying. And we've got these disciples here in the boat. This is not to like disparage their character. Maybe they are praying. The account just doesn't include it. But it's certainly not something that's hi- it's not highlighted or even spoken of. So you don't see them speaking to God, calling out to God. They speak to Jesus. Get up. Don't you care? Jesus then gets up and he speaks to the storm. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't pray here. He directly addresses the storm. He possesses within himself the authority to command nature. And it says that he rebuked the wind and the sea. It's interesting. That's the same word that's used of what he does with the demons. He rebukes them. So it's, there's an interesting thing there that this may be a picture that, again, it's showing his power over natural evil. What is Jesus' mission? It's come, he's coming to undo the curse. He's dealing with spiritual evil, but he's also dealing with natural evil. And so look at them. They ask a question. <laughs> they, they say, do you not care? Which picture's what? Uncertainty. Jesus commands. What is that picture? Authority and control. So there's very much a contrast between the disciples and Jesus. But then you also get this interesting contrast. There's a contrast between the weather conditions before and after Jesus' intervention. And yet the language is similar. Look, it says a great windstorm arose. Then what happens after Jesus speaks? And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You see the contrast Mark really wants to bring this out in our minds. He wants to show us the difference that Jesus' intervention makes into this situation. Mark wants to highlight that for us. Jesus has the authority to effect a significant change within the situation. It's interesting as well. It's kind of funny. Jesus is calm during and after the storm. I mean, he's calm because he's asleep. 
but he's calm afterwards. The disciples are fearful during, and they're fe- fearful after, but for different reasons, okay? They're still described as being fearful. It's interesting, then, that Jesus, he questioned his followers regarding their response. In one sense, he does ask them a question. He questioned them, their response to what had just occurred, as they questioned his true identity amongst themselves. Look at verse 40 and 41. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Two quick observations. The first is this. His questioning them, it revealed that they had failed to take note that his reaction to the storm was messianic. His reaction to the storm was messianic. It's interesting. See, they're seeing him in his pure human limitation. Maybe they even think he's just accepting their fate. He's just going to go with it. He's not concerned. That's all they see. What they fail to recognize, though, is that his, his ability to actually lay down and rest in the midst of that is trust in the Lord. They do not see that. Does not connect or compute for them. It's very interesting that in Psalm 3, a psalm of David that would have been well known to faithful Israelites of the day. Look at Psalm 3, verses 3 through 6 that I've given you there. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This is the psalm from when David fled from Absalom. It was a turbulent situation, a time of fear and distress for David. And what you see here, though, is that David, in this psalm, he has confidence in the Lord. So much confidence that even in the midst of everything crazy, he could rest. He could go to sleep. He could trust that the Lord was with him and would watch over him in the midst of those difficult circumstances. What you have here in the ship on the Sea of Galilee is Jesus embodying this psalm as the greater David. All the disciples see, though, is human weakness. They just see his human weakness. And yet, all of a sudden, then, when he speaks and exercises his divine power, This is probably why they're overwhelmed, because they're just seeing him in what they perceive as weakness. And then all of a sudden, he exercises power that none of them could exercise, and they're overwhelmed by it. Second thing then, so he questions them. They're not seeing him embody trust. They're not seeing that. They're just seeing weakness. But then they themselves, they question. The questioning among themselves, it revealed that they, again, had not fully understood his identity as the Son of God. It it just shows you they are not at all aware of who it is that they're dealing with here. And and we've got to give them some grace here because how, how can you really rationalize in your mind the Incarnation? We can look at the creeds and talk about him being truly God and truly man, we, we can understand those things, and those things are true, but how do you put that together and make that make sense of the guy who's sitting next to you in the boat? So we've got to give them some grace here, and yet they should have trusted. They should have, rec- they should have embodied, and this is what's amazing too. If they're the insiders, if they're the ones who are with Jesus, they should embody the trust of their rabbi. 
of their master. And yet they don't. They're losing their minds. They're overwhelmed here. What's interesting is that there is a psalm that talks about a situation like this. In Psalm 107, it's the psalm of let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Famous psalm, well-known psalm, would have been used within worship within the synagogues. Psalm 107, verses 28 through 31. This is speaking about those, it's looking at, it takes these sections of different kinds of people and the way they come to the place of worshiping the Lord. And this is focused on those who were sailors, those who were involved in sailing. It says, they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from all their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his wondrous works to the children of man. The picture in this psalm is the sailors who saw the power of God, called out to him, and he delivered them, and then their response is to give thanks to him. It's interesting, in some sense, the disciples do this, but they don't do it in faith. They do look to Jesus. They do actually go to God and call out in distress, but they're not doing it in faith the way the psalmist is. They're doing it just based on the pure human element of their situation. What, what are you thinking? We're, we're all dying. You've got to wake up. You gotta, don't you even care that we're dying? It's interesting. They turn to Jesus out of frustration with his humanity rather than in trust of his divinity. Again, it shows you they don't quite understand who they're dealing with. And yet what we see here is that Jesus, he exercises his authority and power. He does it for their protection, but he does it as well to give them a glimpse of who he truly was. They get this insight. He's been pulling them aside and teaching, explaining his teaching, unveiling and giving insight. And then this situation is one of the ways that he unveils and gives some insight into his identity, and they freak out. I mean, look at the, the imagery there of their questioning. It says they were filled with great fear. That's not really, if you rendered the Greek, it would say they were filled with fear at, like, and great fear. It like double emphasizes it to get it across. It's like they were frightful with great fear is kind of a, a way to like, that you could literally render that term. And I thought that was interesting too. Mark's the only one that gives you that level of detail, which I think is interesting because remember, where does Mark get this account? Or from who does he get this account? Gets it from Peter. So Peter, recalling the situation, recalls the intensity with which they are afraid. And it's interesting that it's almost like Peter emphasizes their fear of Jesus. That fear, especially if you're reading in the Greek, sort of dwarfs even the implied fear of them there in the boat. Because they've just gotten this glimpse of who Jesus truly is that God himself is with them, that Jesus has the authority to command nature. Again, going back to Psalm 107, who is it that stills the waves? It's Yahweh. It's God himself. He's the one who does this. And they see Jesus do it. Here's the key point. Because they are with him, his followers were given glimpses of his true identity as the Son of God through the miracles that they witnessed. They're slowly coming to understand by teaching, but then they're getting further, things are being unveiled in terms of what they see, and they're overwhelmed by it. It shows you the progress that, that Jesus is slowly teaching. He's slowly showing. They're going to be growing into this, and they're ultimately still not going to get it, even when he's crucified. 
It's not until the resurrection and ultimately the sending of the Holy Spirit that they fully put all of this together. And yet he's good to them. He's calm with them. He teaches them. And yet I think you can sense some of his frustration with them there. Do you still have no faith? So a couple of concluding thoughts, okay? If, if we need to think about what is Mark wanting his audience to do in writing these accounts. I think he wants his audience to know who Jesus is and to see the importance of following him. But he wants us to think about what it means for us, like the first disciples, to be with Jesus. Okay, so I think two concluding thoughts for us. The first is this. We can rely upon the Lord Jesus as the one who gives teaching and insight into God's word, even when we lack understanding. As you, as you spend time reading God's word, you're going to come to places where you're like, I don't exactly understand this. I don't understand all of this. Maybe you're in that place right now, even thinking about certain doctrines or teachings, or maybe it's just things going on like in, with your own reading. You're just, you don't understand everything. Here's the thing to recognize. You rely upon Jesus as the one who gives teaching and insight. He doesn't give teaching and insight to the, the, the apostles all at once. It's this progressive thing where he's teaching them and unveiling. What he's done then for us as Christians, he's sent his spirit so that we would have understanding of what he teaches in his word. I love this then in 1 Peter, written, or excuse me, that should be 2 Peter, not 1 Peter. So it's 2 Peter, it's written at the end of Peter's life, and in talking about things that Paul wrote. Look at verse 15. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter, the guy in the boat who saw Jesus still the storm, didn't fully have everything knocked down or lined up and understood, even towards the end of his life. He's recognized that there's difficulty sometimes. But you know what he did? He had trust in who Jesus was and he had confidence in God's word. In fact, in, first, in 2 Peter 1, he basically said that God's word, the written, revealed word of God, he has more confidence in that than even his own experience of seeing the transfiguration. That's literally the example he uses in 2 Peter chapter 1. So wherever you are, if you're struggling now with something, God has given you his spirit, he's given you his word, but he's also given you his church. I mean, he references Paul there. That means he's reading Paul's writings. He's with other believers. If there's things you're questioning or trying to understand, Come to people that know. Go to, if, if you're younger, go to your parents. If you're in the youth group, go talk to Pastor Daniel. If you're struggling with something, come and talk to me or one of the elders. We would love to help you with things, help you understand. Not that we've got everything lined up and perfectly understood ourselves, but Jesus is ultimately your teacher, and he does so by the Spirit. Second is this. We can trust that the Lord Jesus is with us even when the circumstances of our lives seem dire. Now, it's wrong to study the account of Jesus calming the storm and then immediately say, what are the storms in your life that Jesus needs to calm? Okay, that's not the best way to read that account. The best way to read that account is to say, Jesus is God. Jesus has sovereign authority and power over all things, and that's being shown to the disciples, and they can't process and handle it. But it's absolutely not wrong to recognize that if Jesus has authority over all things, then we can trust him. In, in that sense, we can be better disciples than the original 12 that are there in the boat with him. 
Instead of freaking out and wondering, is Jesus here? Does he care? We can recognize that he is with us. We can understand who it is that is with us. So for you, maybe your struggle is not with something that Jesus teaches, but it's with your own circumstances. And what you need to understand then is that the same Lord Jesus who is your teacher is the Lord God Almighty who is with you. Look at Paul. At the end of his life, after having been abandoned by some of his closest friends and co-workers, this is what he says. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Maybe literally, maybe that's metaphorical. But look at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That is not Paul naming and claiming that Jesus is going to always take care of him. In fact, in this letter, Paul says, uses the phrase, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, recognizing that he's going to be beheaded probably or killed. Beheaded because he's a Roman citizen. So he's not saying, Jesus is going to absolutely come rescue me from all the difficulty in my life. What he's saying is he understands that Jesus is with him and whatever circumstances the Lord brings him through, the Lord is with him and will ultimately bring him into his heavenly kingdom, into his glory and his presence forever. Friends, the same Lord Jesus who is with us as teacher, who meets with us in the morning when you get your coffee, when you open your Bible, he's the same one who is your shepherd who walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death who is with you through the difficult circumstances of your life, and the one in whom you can trust. So with what Mark would have us do, let us recognize Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God, the one who teaches us the truth from God's Word, the one who is ultimately with us as our Savior and Lord, and let us be comforted. May God encourage our hearts with these truths. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, thank you for your word that meets us where we are. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, whether it's teaching that they're struggling with, whether it's circumstances that they're struggling with, Lord, we all find ourselves in those places at various times. I thank you for what we've seen in your word, that Jesus continues to reveal things to those who have trust, faith and trust in him, and he's with those who have faith and trust in him. So Lord, I just pray that we would have confidence in Jesus, that we would then see in him and in his own confidence and trust in you that we need not be afraid. We can walk in the fear of the Lord in in reverence and trust in you, worshipful recognition of who you are as God, but we need not fear the circumstances of our lives, Lord. Give us confidence. Make us anxious for nothing, Lord, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. May we make our requests known to you. And Father, I pray then that in light of that, your peace that passes all understanding would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.